Welcome to the Hobcast, a weekly podcast from Hobeck Books, an independent publisher of thrillers, crime, and suspense novels. Each week, we'll take you behind the scenes of what we do, the challenges and the triumphs, the bumps and troughs of building a new creative business in this pandemic world. We'll hear from the people who make all this possible, the authors, cover designers, and editors, and we'll have expert insights from our guest star interviews. Nothing is off the agenda on the Hopcast from Hobeck Books, as we combine trad values and an indie spirit. Hello, and welcome again to the Hopcast Book Show, and welcome to the coast of Anglesey. The edge of Wales. The northern edge of Wales, and it is a beautiful setting that we're sitting in. We're sitting on rocks. The sea is... On the rock, but not the rock. No, not the rock. Uh, it, the sea is lapping uh, against the rocks, and it is a stunning day. There's hardly a cloud, and it really is perfect. We just broke away from the Hobeck Towers for a couple of nights at the end of half term, where your boys are away. Yeah. And it's been blissful. I think this is the calm after the multiple storms, isn't it? Because it's the end of February. Yeah, it feels, I would say, uh, early April. It feels it's it's not warm, but it's mild enough to be out and about, and to be sitting down, not moving, and not to feel too cold. It's, it's, there's no clouds in the sky at all, and the sea is a deep blue. It's lovely. Yeah, it's the first time we've had warmth from the sun for a very long time. It feels almost spring-like, so... We're taking full advantage and we're out and about recording this show. It is show number 58 of the Hopcast. And we are delighted that our guest later is Rachel McLean, who is one of the UK's most successful crime authors at this current time. She is doing staggeringly well. Had number one. She's also the winner of last year's Kindle Storyteller Award. Extremely prestigious. Thousands upon thousands of entries. And yet she's the winner. And uh, she'll be telling us all about that. And how, after writing several novels and not having a lot of success, she sat down, treated it like a business, and bang, she's been selling thousands of books. She basically changed her mindset, didn't she? She changed the way she approached um, writing completely, and it worked for her. It was brilliant. And she shares an awful lot of information. So if you're an aspiring indie author, if you're an indie publisher, anyone involved in your books, this is a fascinating interview. It is full of insights and uh, more detail than we ever expected, really. So uh, Rachel McLean is our guest later. We haven't done our introductions yet. We haven't yet. said who we are, have we? No, we haven't. No, no, no. OK. <laughs> I'm Adrian Hobart. And I'm Rebecca Collins. And together we run Hobart Books, UK independent publishers of the following genres. You're not going to do a Welsh accent, are you? Um, I can try. Crime. Yeah. <laughs> that was Merseyside. <laughs> I, I used to be able to do a Welsh accent, but uh, I can't do it anymore. Uh, so I'll say mystery. Thrillers. And uh, suspense. And pop ping. <laughs> no, uh, anyway, here we are in Wales. Uh, we'll soon be escorted off the premises after that little effort. Off the premises? We're on a rock and there are no people inside. Who's no. going to escort us? No, exactly. It is so quiet here. It, it's it's quite otherworldly, really. Uh, although there is a power station just over the, the brow of the, the next hill. So you're dragging me on a cliff walk. Um, yes, and you probably think we're about halfway, but... This is just the beginning. No, it, it is. It is honestly the way back now. So uh, we've got to be conscious of the fact cafes will shut soon and we won't get any lunch and then I shall be 
hangry and humphy for the rest of the day. Dear listeners, this is something that bothers him quite a lot when we're out and about, especially when we're on holiday and in somewhere he doesn't know. He needs to know where he's going to get food. I absolutely do. And you don't pretend you don't feel that way as well. Um, I do, but I don't plan it in advance. I only start worrying when I start getting hungry. <laughs> yeah. OK, well, that's that's a clear difference between the two of us. Well, news-wise this week, in publishing terms, um, it's a little thin on the ground, to be honest. But I did read a, a very interesting article in Publishing Insights, which was reflecting on the sheer level of impact that Apple's decision, it was um, late last year, they changed the settings on uh, iOS, and that meant that phone users could opt out of sharing their data, and most people did. And the impact on Facebook, or its parent company, Meta, has been monumental. And this feeds into the effectiveness of adverts on Facebook. So they have lost, they estimate, since that change, $10 billion in revenue. That is incredible. I mean, I don't know what the total revenue, you know, the the sort of comparison between before and after, but that's a lot of money. Well, I mentioned last week they've lost 20% of their company value. Okay. Or a couple of weeks ago, I think it was. It's in a bit in perspective, but... I just have a question very quickly. So you said people have to opt out. Now, I don't think I have because this morning I said, well, we had a conversation about coffee. And when I climbed back into bed with the coffee, an advert for a coffee maker appeared on Facebook. Uh, Yeah. Well, look, I mean, (laughs) the thing is that what happens is with that change in iOS, you get this thing. Do you want this app to follow your data? Oh, okay. And most people say no. So gradually, bit by bit, you're... But for Facebook, who've relied on knowing as much as they can about you because of the amount of information you share anyway yeah. with your friends and whatever. And then where they also track where you go on the internet. They know an awful lot about you. But with that iOS change, and the, the point of the article was that Google are about to do the same with Android. This, so this applies to people using Facebook on their phone. And if, um, as happened with the Facebook, 75% of people do switch off the data sharing then suddenly Facebook are blind and therefore your ads are blind in the sense that previously you could go into tiny granular detail about who you were targeting with your adverts for books, uh, different types of author, comparison author for yeah. one thing. That was one thing. Uh, but then, you know, age groups and locations and all sorts of little things. Absolutely, yeah. So it, it has made that, well, it's basically there's no point to putting that much detail in because it won't make a difference. So we've started already to be much broader in our targeting, um, but we've noticed a decline in effectiveness of our Facebook ads, haven't we? So We have, we have. Well, I mean, the thing we've had to do, and this is borne out now by a number of other sources, I was on a, on a website which you know, talks about this stuff endlessly, There's people just going wide and saying, right, crime fiction, that's my target. And they've actually sold quite well as a result. But are you really getting you know the sort of target you know you can't you don't know your audience anymore you're just sort of you're getting it's the blunderbuss approach to targeting it is because it's guesswork and yeah i mean we've had a couple of ads that are targeted to crime fiction and uh, a demographic and that's it and they've been successful but we don't know whether that's just luck or we don't know yeah well i mean that is a major shift in the landscape because i think to be honest until recently, Facebook was the number one advertising platform for, for selling books. Um, and so, you know, uh, our consultant, Matt Holmes, is moving, uh, we're moving our money and his expertise to Amazon ads, 
and see how that goes. But that takes a lot longer to start registering. Um, and, you know, we just hope it all works. But uh, that is a, a significant shift in, 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 the, in the marketplace. I think for me, one advantage Facebook always had over Amazon is that you could put more information in. You could be quite creative in your text, in your visuals, whereas Amazon ads isn't like that, is it? It's just telling it to serve your book. Well, up to a point. In America, you can do more than that. If you've got three titles, you can create a little bit more, and you can also put a, a, a line of blurb. It's only 140 characters, so it's it's quite short. Um, but there is more you can do on the in the US marketplace. Right. Okay. Well, that, that, I mean, if that ever comes to the UK, I think that would be a good thing. Well, it staggers me that it hasn't yet because it's not a really big deal in terms of presumably coding or changing things. But it's taken an awful long time because the Americans have had that for eighteen months, two years. Well, They've still not come over to the UK. We can, but hope. <laughs> but we, we we're trying to explore other avenues, aren't we? So, of course, we're using TikTok more. Um, well, scores on the doors. How many? How many? How many subscribers? So, uh, Christmas we had seven uh, followers to uh, Hobeck on TikTok. We now have, I think, 240. So it's going well. Yeah, it's grown a lot in the last week. In fact, the last couple of days, hasn't it? It has. And I've started, um, I've, I've noticed my mindset has changed in that I'm walking along and I think, oh, that would make a good TikTok video. <laughs> and like yesterday, there were two ducks being very cute on the water's edge. So I did a video about them. Oh, lovely duckies. <laughs> yeah, no, you, they were cute. They were cute. It's good little TikTok. Anyway, just, just another avenue that we're working on, uh, along with Bookstagram and you name it, we're in it. Um, we're, we're trying everything we can to promote our authors. And in fact, this morning, we had the, uh, as we record, this is Sunday morning we're recording this, it goes out on the Monday. Uh, we, of course, had the pleasure of watching Mr. Dawes. Robert Dawes was uh, in conversation with Alan Titchmarsh on ITV1. And not only that, we learned so much about daffodils and about painting your shed. <laughs> no, but in all seriousness, it was it was a moment for us to have not only one of our authors on ITV1, but you know, on a chat show for quite a considerable amount of time as well. It was quite an in-depth interview, but one of our book covers appear on the screen. I think we both got quite excited about that. We did, and he mentioned Hobart by name, so that was that was lovely. Um, so we'll see, you know, gazillions of sales as a result of that one mention. <laughs> uh, well, you never know. I mean, it's it's a program named at the demographic of the people who, who love Robert Dawes books. So that's uh, that's that's terrific. Uh, otherwise, and news-wise, very little about. I have to say. And, I, I, you know, there's lots of people swooping and scooping yeah, so books at the moment. Not much industry news in terms of changes in the industry. But, you know, it's always quite interesting to see what people are being scooped, as you say, and what, what ideas are coming up. So the one that caught my eye was um, somebody, an uh, unknown author, so an ominous author, is um, going to be writing a party etiquette book guide to Downing Street, which... Um, <laughs> made me giggle so i look forward to that <laughs> yeah that that'll be one of those sort of stocking filler type i don't know things three volume i think <laughs> <laughs> the trilogy well the way they party in downing street there's probably scope for that uh yeah and you know obviously it's been a tough week globally uh with the ukraine crisis and the war there I think that's the thing. Everyone's attention has been on what's going on in Ukraine. That you know, there hasn't been anything else to report about, really. No, indeed, indeed. And uh, you know, it's. I mean, it's something that I've sort of. I've gone through these waves of following every detail and then switching off. Um, what's interesting, I think, is that the coverage, and this includes the television, is very limited in terms of actually knowing what the hell's going on. 
and that's because of the scale of the of the attack in terms of the number of places it's happening. Uh, also, the risk averse nature of war reporting nowadays. Um, you know, there really is uh, there's a, there's a huge infrastructure at the BBC, for instance, uh, built around keeping people safe. Quite understandably, because in recent years, more and more people have been killed while reporting. But there isn't a feeling that people really know what's going on. What's happening is, I mean, we're getting a lot of reporters sitting on rooftops and then running for cover when when the air raid sirens go off, quite understandably. But being told by the studio what's being reported on the wires. And I don't think any of the information is particularly um, strong. No. I mean, you certainly can't believe any of the Russian stuff. Well, they seem to be focused on the human interest um, elements, don't they? The, the, what's happening to the people who are yeah, the leaving Ukraine? Yeah, which but, which is very important because you know that really touched me last night when I was watching. The oh, news. totally, totally. But we're not what we're not seeing, and this is, no, I'm not I'm trying to say that you know in a prurient way, but we're not seeing the actual fighting. A lot of it. I mean, if if we see any, it's done on a on a mobile phone, um, and it's you know user generated content as they used to call it UGC. Um, sort of filming but look I mean our thoughts are with the people of Ukraine it's absolutely hideous what's going on and and, and, you know I'm a bit of a doom merchant when it comes to these things because I follow military matters a lot about you know who owns what and what kits around and um, you know the the chances of escalation are quite high I think well yes so we'll be keeping track as we go each podcast every week Um, we could just just hope that it's not as bad as your doomy gloomy side thinks it will be yeah okay well that's, that's you know sadly in my nature uh right well let's move on to that let's get to our interview then let's speak to rachel mclean who's based in birmingham and wrote in a number of genres before deciding to spend some time researching the police procedural and making sure that her books would directly appeal to the fans of that genre and not only that she really worked out her marketing strategy with you know forensic skill and the fact is that since she launched the dorset crime series she's gone crazy in terms of the number of sales and as she reveals you know there's no secret to it she spends heavily there's a big you know monthly investment in advertising but it's working she's selling thousands of books a day she's on that level isn't she where the, the the investment is much much bigger but the you know the outcome is also um, big enough to justify that so it's a fascinating story talking to her it is and she also dictates her, her books and uh, rather than using keyboard because her shoulder's given up which indeed mine is at the moment well let's talk to rachel mclean well we're really truly honored to be speaking to you rachel mclean thank you so much for joining us thank you for inviting me it's a pleasure to be here and we speak to you well just a down few the week- road yeah down the road I was gonna say, but, <laughs> but just a few weeks after winning the Kindle Storyteller Award for 2021, which, I mean, the, I, I personally think there's none bigger because it's one that is picked really by, you know, readers as much as anybody else. Yeah, so it's a democratic award, isn't yeah, it? Uh, yeah, much, much more so than some of the others that are, are around. So uh, many congratulations for that. How did that feel? Oh, it felt amazing. Um, to be honest, I, I entered last year and I got, I guess you call it long listed. I got a mention, I got a feature on the page on the Amazon website and I got no contact from them at all. And then this year they contacted me in September and, and said, oh, we, we want to set up a phone call to chat about your Kindle Storyteller entry. And I thought, 
Ah, does this mean I've been shortlisted? And to be honest, that was enough at that point. I was doing a happy dance around my kitchen when I found out I'd been shortlisted. You know, going down to London, meeting Claire Balding, who was awarding it. Um, but then I didn't realise until I actually won how much better it is winning. And it's been <laughs> fantastic. Um, and my, Amazon gave me a part of the prize is a marketing campaign from Amazon. Oh, and good. that gave my books a huge boost in November. Um, that was actually worth as much as the cash prize in terms of my sales. And and also there's just been so many opportunities to, to, to do things and to meet people. So, for example, at London Book Fair, I'll be speaking on a panel and I'll be on the Amazon stand. Um, there have been other radio interviews and all sorts of opportunities. And it's it's got me lots of attention, which has been great for the books. So mm. and it's been a lot of fun really really good fun and lovely to meet all the other authors some great authors shortlisted and it was really nice to spend a few days in London with them chatting about writery things and (laughs) and indie writery things specifically as well because there are you know there are different there are business and marketing topics that come up that when you're talking to traditionally published authors their eyes glaze over and (laughs) they're like deer in headlights effect yeah (laughs) I don't know anything about that well it's 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 a it's a great endorsement it must give you great confidence i mean quite apart from the financial business and also building a bigger community of people you can you know rub shoulders with and, and, ask and we'll see on. you at the london book fair, and we hopefully. will see you at london book fair. We'll there for the three days you know uh genuflecting to the uh to the <laughs> the agents and all the other people that we need to uh, to influence but we'll, we'll look forward to seeing you there now um the main reason we, we got you on the program apart from the kindle story Wall and the massive success you've had particularly in in recent months with with the uh, the Dorset series is your oh, oh, I, non-fiction I've, book I've been reading it this morning <laughs> Good. So, let's get it a bit closer to the camera so that people on YouTube can see this five steps to author success uh which came out what January wasn't it Look, halfway the book it came out on Christmas Eve Christmas Eve, oh, Christmas okay. Eve. Um, I actually I appeared on the self-publishing show podcast on Christmas Eve and it was pretty much ready to go and I thought right I'm going to make sure it's ready to go that day um, because I knew that you know that that would that would be a, a boon for sales because it gets a big audience of my target market for that book but to be honest I wrote it I mean I, it's not one that I'm selling huge amounts of copies of or doing any marketing for because my focus is on the fiction but mm. I wrote it because I get lots of people contacting me and saying how did you do it mm-hmm. how did you get started what did you change at the point where you went from selling a few copies a day to, to eventually a few thousand and what can you share? And I was writing long and detailed emails to other writers because I'm very keen on, on you know, paying it forward and handing sure. on advice because I've got all that. I got all that advice from other people. I, mm-hmm. For example, I bought David Goffrin a drink at the Festival of Writing and picked his brains for an entire evening. And actually, he ended up giving me a drink because he did just bought a bottle of wine. Um, <laughs> but you know, people, people who just share their expertise and their experience have been incredibly helpful to me. And so I wanted to, to put it all down somewhere so that I could say to people, well, this is, this is what I did. Mm. Um, and these are the steps that I went through. And it's, it's not just about the marketing. A lot of it's about mindset and about your approach to writing and I think writing with the reader in mind, first and yes. foremost, if if you're going to be successful as an author, I think you know, there's a lot to be said for people who want to write something that's from their heart and that's their passion project. And they want to write themselves. But the reality is the chances of you actually making a living from writing like that are quite slim. 
Whereas if you take the time to do market research, just as any other business would, mm. and understand what it is readers love and what they respond to, it drastically increases your chances of, of gaining a readership. So it's basically you're treating it like a project. So it's a project. And with project management, you know, I've been on project management mm-hmm. courses and you do learn that, that the most essential part is before you actually begin the project, the doing the research and, you know, yeah. cutting out the way you're thinking about the project and also setting the goals, realistic goals. So not just thinking, oh, I'll finish it one day and oh, I might write some today. And if I'm not having a bad day, I won't do some on that day, you know, sort of. It's being much more business-like about it, I suppose. Yeah, and I think I've got goals in terms of my writing, um, in terms of you know, what I want to write and publish each year, um, and also in a word count for a day or a week or a month or whatever. But I've also got goals in terms of sales and chart positions and which markets I'm trying to push more into. So, for example, most of my sales are in the UK, but I'm I'm starting to do more of a push on the US now, which is going well so far. It is really weird because it's almost like starting again, so it's quite slow. So I'm having yeah. to revisit what I did in the beginning in the UK and compare it to that in order to assess how successful it's been. I'm also um, working in Germany. So I've had my, I had the Castle murders, the one that won the Storyteller Award. That's been translated into German. And I've got a contract with a translator to translate the next two in that series. And I'm, again, sort of starting over in Germany and, and going through a lot of the same process that I did when I started really, you know, hunkering down and focusing on the marketing in the UK, which is, is interesting. And it's, it's it's challenging, but it's it's also quite nice because I know I've got a buffer of the fact that I have got so many sales in the UK and I'm not having to scrabble around for the money to pay for the ads and that kind of thing, which is what I was doing at the beginning. So are there a lot of differences then between the UK and the US? Well, I, one thing I noticed from your book, and this, this was a, a real light bulb moment when I read it, and just this morning, in fact, um, yeah, uh, you know, landed, let's say, was that definition is we we often put you know in our keywords crime you you know british crime you know, police procedural crime la, la, la. but in america that's the wrong phrase it's a mystery yeah yeah, yeah. and yeah. that had you know it's i feel like slapping myself several times with birch twigs or something because <laughs> you know until you'd i'd pick that out of your book it hadn't occurred to me that's how they define it and so therefore when we're trying to get sales in the u.s which we struggle to do one of our mm. books has gone crazy over there but all of the others it's almost entirely uk sales um it's probably because and one reason is because we're not using the word mystery in the description of anything well you see i associate mystery yeah. with cozy maybe but let, see, yeah. in the uk in the u.s mystery is more of an umbrella term mm. and if you look at the amazon store the, the the categories are different. So police procedural comes under, there's no crime category. Mm. But it comes under mystery. Um, whereas in the UK store, it comes under crime and cosy mysteries are mystery. So I think there's, there's sort of two aspects to that. One is the fact that you know, understanding that the language used is different. So for example, on Facebook in the UK, I target readers of crime fiction. In the US, I target readers of mystery and of crime. Because people who mm. define themselves as mystery readers in the US aren't necessarily cosy readers. But it's also worth um, mentioning that US readers of, of UK-based crime, mystery, whatever you want to call it, 
do predominantly read cozies. And there's not a huge amount of crossover in terms of police procedurals. American readers prefer to read American police procedurals. Mm. Um, British readers will read both. So people like James Patterson, David Baldacci, you know, your massive American authors are also huge here. Yes. Um, but it doesn't necessarily work the other way around, even with really big names, you know, people like Val McDermott and Ian Rankin. They sell well in the US, but by no means in the numbers that they do in the UK. But cozies are very different. And I think that is because you know, there is this perception of, of this old fashioned ideal of, of, of England, and it is England. Um, and and what you know what Americans like to read about about England. Um, and so I, I mean I have quite a lot of friends who write cozies and they their sales figures in terms of the UK and US are not quite reversed compared to mine but they do sell a lot more in the US because it's obviously such a huge market um I I will I I am planning on writing a cozy series at some point um I've got another another police procedural series in the pipeline set in Scotland which I'm going to be writing this year and then the next series I start after that will be a a cozy but it will be set in London um and it will be based around landmarks so the protagonist will be a tour guide and there'll be bodies found in Buckingham Palace and the Tower of London and places like that. So it'll use those landmarks that people internationally know. But at the same time, it, it won't really be chocolate box because that's not my style. No, um, I will have to make sure I don't have swearing in that kind of thing for cosies. But to be honest, my although I do have swearing in my books in the Corf Castle Murders, Dennis, the DS has got a swear jar and he doesn't <laughs> like people swearing. So actually I made a bit of a joke of that, but it, it does mean there's not a huge amount of, of swearing in, in, in my books. And I think that does help me in the American market because there's more sensitivity to it there. You need a swear jar. I do you need a rich. swear jar. Well, uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, yeah. I mean, when I was um, an editor at the BBC, I mean, or particularly the, 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 my previous role, to the one I left uh, doing um, was when I was running a, you know, 24 hour news operation, uh, you know, actually running the team and getting the stuff out on air. And I must admit, I mean, Gordon Ramsay would struggle to, to beat me for swearing. My goodness. Uh, in that, I think Gordon Ramsay would struggle to beat you when the cat's getting on your nerves. Uh, true. True. <laughs> yeah. Um, which, I mean, I don't want to digress into a story, but I mean, I did once tell, Gordon Ramsay I was told he was a guest of ours on, on BBC Breakfast and my my editor told me to go and tell him that it was a family show and not to swear you know 7 35 in the morning and uh, that didn't go down too well um uh, I think I've told this story before on the podcast but basically we had uh, Billy Bragg got got involved and um and then Morris Stewart was sitting on the end of the sofa in the green room and uh I mean I yeah. I hate to say the colour drain, but you know what I mean. Her expression yeah. was. You telling me Maura Stewart didn't stand up and say that's mm, ridiculous. Uh, <laughs> well, I think she was. She said she was that would have been really funny. I think she was tempted to, to be perfectly honest. But uh, no, no. So yeah, I mean that's an interesting thing as well. I mean that's another point I was taking up this morning when I when I was reviewing things again. Um, that that whole point about swearing uh, and the your. I suppose genre and the side of the genre that you're working in determining how much swearing you can you can actually use and as you say in cozy it's a no-no isn't it yeah and also that applies to gore so my books aren't particularly gory um 
because I don't I don't particularly enjoy reading a lot of gore. Um, but you know, they do I do have crime scene um scenes and postmortems where there is description of the state of the body and that kind of thing. And in a cozy, you really don't get that. Um no. it's you know, the body is sort of almost almost pristine. It somehow miraculously died without anything nasty happening. Uh, but uh, yeah, there are a few things that that like that, and I also think the the level of humor in cozies tends to be higher. It's a sort of gentle humor, yes. but there is an expectation of humor. Although I do include humor in my my Dorset ones in particular. Um, I quite like writing a bit of banter between the characters and and having a bit of a laugh with that. And what I love is listening to the audio books. <laughs> and hearing Jan Kramer, my narrator, bring that to life because she makes them so much funnier than I wrote them. <laughs> really good. She's terrific. Yeah, yeah. we we were yeah we sleep. listened to the Carter one, didn't we? Yes, we did. <laughs> we, we we when we we approached you, we thought, oh, we'll have a have a good listen, and we were on the we're probably not that far from. We you. were on the M6 at the time. No, yeah. M40. That's right. I think. Yeah. Oh, no, that was the M6. No, M40. Um, and the M40. Not far from no, me. Well, the M40 is <laughs> further down, isn't it? Yes, we, we, we used it. We used trip. it later. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> goodness me, we do digress. Look, my my dad knows a lot about motorways. So. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm I'm so glad for him. Um. So yes, yeah, so there we were listening. It is a brilliant performance by Jan. Yeah, absolutely. And to I suppose what I really admire because I do a lot of narration myself is how she switched between the different accents and and had mm-hmm. you know the Brummy accent absolutely down. So I don't know if she's from there or she's. It's, she's trained. not at all. She has a she has a very neutral accent. Um, and what's quite interesting is Jan can tell you what it is that makes an accent. So when I we had a phone call uh, mm. before she started narrating the first book, and I said I want Zoe to talk a bit like me to have a mild Brummy accent, and she then described to me exactly what aspects of my speech and which vowels and so forth made my accent a mild Brummie accent. And that's something that I have absolutely, I recognise a mild Brummie accent when I hear one, but I don't know <laughs> what it is that makes it. Um, and and she she can tell you what what the aspects are of different accents, yes. accents which I guess helps her to do it mm. because she knows what she's doing. She's not just trying to imitate something she's heard. She understands what it is she needs to do with her voice and her mouth to get different accents. Yeah. And she does that so well. I, I approached her because um, she she narrates Angela Marston's Kim Stone books. Yeah. And and obviously the accent in that is a lot stronger because it's in the black country. And I love the way she did the accents and just the whole the whole feel of them and the way she brings them to life. And I approached her and I, I ran auditions with a few other narrators as well. And her, she was head and shoulders mm-hmm. above the others because, because of the fact that she did those accents, but she did it in a way that didn't sound like it was parody or being silly. Um, and it just worked. And a lot of people just read it straight and did the whole thing in their own voice. And that was nowhere near as much fun. No, no you that... need to have some character in it, don't you? You need to feel the character. It's an interesting thing. I mean, you know, I bought by those books that tell you how to do accents, and it's full of exactly what Jan's mastered in terms of, you know, positioning in the mouth and the different, you know, soft rotic this, that, and the other, and, uh, you know, place it more in the nose or in the chest or whatever it might be. Mm. I haven't quite, and the diphthongs and all that stuff, I haven't mastered that. I haven't got the attention span to learn that. So I am yeah. from the imitation school, uh, unfortunately, and um, perhaps <laughs> perhaps it would behove me to 
to to to learn the, the system but you know if you can do that if you can look at uh, the description of an accent in a book and listen to the cd and and match it up and then get those nuances it's such a skill it's mm. wonderful but i think what so she, she you know but that's one one aspect of it the character voices are just one aspect it's getting the narration voice the space that you give the words the pace all of that element she has got that down as well i mean it's it's a really beautiful performance and i actually was sort of in there going damn it i've still, I've still got tons to learn <laughs> He was. I was yeah. just enjoying it because it flowed so well that you, if, I think if you almost forget that someone's reading to you or it's like when you're reading, you forget, you, you know, you're not conscious of the words. You're just well, reading it's not, and it's flowing. In Jan's case, it is not a read. That's the whole yeah, point, it's isn't a, it? It's, yeah. a, it's, a, it's a performance. It's a performance and a story and, a, and telling a story, which is yeah. different from just reading. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's a really interesting point that you make about how narration and writing both do that job and I feel very strongly that if you're going to write genre fiction like me um as against literary fiction you need to write in a way that doesn't draw attention to itself and that does a job of telling the story and making the characters come to life and feel real in the reader's heads and not make the reader stop and think about what they're reading and what the sentence structure is and that kind of thing. There is a place for that in literary fiction and obviously in poetry, but in the kind of fiction I write, I, I, I'm a member of a writer's group and what you often find, and I know I did it at the beginning, is when people are starting out, they try and write the most beautiful prose they can. Yeah. And they focus very heavily on that because there is a perception that that's what writing is. And I think that's largely perpetuated by, by certain parts of the media, which are very focused on literary fiction and the Booker Prize and so forth. But the reality is the books that people are reading are not those books. And people are much more interested in the story than they are in the words themselves. Yeah, they want to be entertained, don't they? Absolutely. It's again another point that I took from, from your book and went back to rewriting my work in progress um a little bit at least you know I, I felt yeah there were points and that this is something that we fed back to submissions as well sometimes yeah it's too self-conscious it's it's shoving every adjective you can possibly get into every sentence oh, we show, have had show that. off your vocabulary <laughs> um you know we're not asking for words we, you know we want something that rattles the story we want to get lost in a story yeah yeah and I think you know I think what's so strong about this book is and I would recommend it to anybody who's trying to get you know into this game is that you strip it back you just tell it as it is it's very you know it's it's not not uh putting in a whole load of levels of mystery which so many of the books do i mean there's some great ones there and you've listed many of them i think in you know in some like john york's into the into the woods and stuff like that um just a magnificent book uh and uh, you know a practical guide in many many respects but so many are there trying to you know throw in the flim flam this is the magic that you'll it'll take you 12 books to get yeah and they make it very academic Mm. um whereas i try to be very practical you know these are the specific things that i did and many many times in the book i say this may not work in the same way for you because we're all different our writing is different the way we approach it is different this is what worked for me and hopefully by you know imitating copying adapting whatever some of that it can work for other people as well. I think you make an important point there, both with the, the non-fiction and the, you know, the, the process of writing, but also with the fiction, because you said that 
you did a lot of research on other books and it's not that you copied anyone but you just took bits that you thought oh that's a bit like me or I can write a bit like that that's quite useful it's sort of like you say you're not saying oh this is a magic formula although I, I blanched when you said I used a spreadsheet because then I thought oh, my he God. doesn't like spreadsheets <laughs> but you see I, I I am a massive fan of spreadsheets I'm still a creative person that you know it's not it's not either or it's not black and white is no, it? no. it's not you either your writer in your ivory tower won't touch a spreadsheet or you know you plot within an inch of your yeah. spreadsheet you can be somewhere between the two <laughs> and I think that's where I've got an advantage because I do love a spreadsheet I do and great. having spreadsheets has, was very very helpful when I was at the early stages of getting advertising to work for me yeah because when your profit margins are quite slim and in some cases my aim wasn't actually to make a profit it was to feed Amazon data that would help it recommend yeah. my books to people being able to, on a daily basis, monitor exactly what that was doing and whether it was profitable was really helpful. And it was also lots of fun because I could see the books taking off through that data. And I, I mean, I spent I spent too much time on it, really. I was creating graphs and all sorts of things. Um, <laughs> but it was it, it, it was useful because I was using that data to make decisions and tweak ads and change my focus. And then eventually when it came to a point when I was just using the data to to look at it and not to actually make decisions I then decided to not do that every day um, and I now do it monthly so I track my my Amazon ads I track fortnightly yeah. because to be honest the amount of money I spend on Amazon ads I need to keep a closer eye on them than monthly but my Facebook ads and my sales in general I track on a monthly basis just so I can see where things are going month to month yeah and in terms of let's go into the, the marketing side of things and the advertising side of things mm. um one thing that we've been discussing with uh you know and, and listening to a lot of people saying is that facebook has stopped being as effective as it was and the, the costs have gone up and the relative conversion rate has, has gone down is that your experience at the moment i still make my facebook ads profitable um, I do have the advantage that my value of sale is very high now. So in both of my series, there are, I mean, there are five books out in the Dorset Crime series and one on pre-order, and there are six books in the Zoe Finch series. So in both cases, sale of book one is worth about £20 to me. Wow. So that means obviously I can yeah. afford to spend a lot more on advertising. And as time goes on, I've got ads that have been running for almost a year and it, it does become a lot more expensive to get the clicks on those ads. When you start out, your clicks are a lot cheaper. But as you work through the audience, it gets more expensive. But I'm still on sales that are directly attributed to my ads through affiliate links. I'm still making 100% return on investment. So that means I'm, I'm doubling my money that I spend on those ads on Facebook. But bear in mind that is with with read through. Yeah. But on the other hand, I'm doing I'm doing the same thing in the US and in Germany with a much smaller budget and with a newer audience. Yeah. And that the profit margins are very, very tight, particularly in Germany. Um, I'm not sure whether Facebook is quite as big in Germany as it is here. Um, it's interesting that um, I don't get a lot of likes or comments on my ads in Germany, whereas I get lots in the UK. Yeah. And um, I always one thing I do if people if people like my ad, I'll invite them to like my page. And they very rarely do in Germany. They also very rarely do in Australia. So I'll get people commenting <laughs> on my ads and saying how much they like the books. But they won't. They won't follow my page. <laughs> I don't know where wow. people this are a bit fascinating. Facebook a in different, Australia. The different cultural um, so difference. It, it, yeah. <laughs> 
it's interesting seeing the cultural differences between different countries and how they use Facebook and how different advertising methods um, work. So I've, I've also just started running Amazon ads to the US and to Germany. So it's very early days. I only set them mm. up yesterday. Um, but what I was doing was I'd been running Facebook ads for a few weeks to show Amazon that those books are selling, to get them, you know, to get a decent rank, um, to tickle the algorithms, as it were, and then <laughs> start using the Amazon ads. Because Amazon ads, there are lots of myths around Amazon ads. And the big one is the fact that they don't they don't deliver, that you can't get them to actually show show up and you can't get any impressions. The reality is that as long as you bid high enough and as long as you do your research on your targeting so that those targets that you're using means your bids, your reasonably high bids will be profitable, you can. I spend, I spend about £10,000 a month on Amazon ads. So I'm certainly getting them to deliver. Mm. Um, and it, I'm bidding relatively high, but not ridiculously high. I'm bidding about 60, 70p um, for a click, which isn't you know, ridiculous, but it's a lot higher than what quite a lot of the advice out there is to bid, you know, eight cents and things like that. Yes. The reality is in any, in any pay-per-click system, you're not going to get clicks if you bid ridiculously low. And actually, I think with Amazon ads, you should start bidding higher than you want to pay because that gives Amazon the data it needs to understand how your ads are working. And then eventually your clicks will become cheaper because Amazon will not only prioritize the bid, but it will prioritize books that are converting and selling. Yes. And so you can bid lower and have your ads delivered over another book that's got a higher bid that, but that isn't converting so providing amazon with that data early on is really important and then you monitor and you scale down your bids and you find that sweet spot um but i think starting on eight cents or whatever is it's it's just a waste of time and it can take a lot of time and effort to set up those ads and then they just don't deliver and it can be very very frustrating that's uh, that's i mean very um insightful to hear that because uh you know it's 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 it is tough and you know there's no guarantee that things are going to sell um you know we've got uh what 30 odd books out there now and certain things have just flown and other things you know no matter what you do um they don't seem to to pick up um in terms of you know, the the pages of your books on amazon how they appear um am i right in thinking that you know when i look at them you're not doing as many of the sort of things that other people do i mean it's it's essentially the blurb uh the back cover blurb um whereas other people bombard it with oh, like a like plus content and, and all that stuff and Fancy and stuff. <laughs> i i just put the blurb on because i think that i've you know i've put the time and effort into creating as powerful a blurb as i can and yep. the idea is that that will sell the book i have to admit part of it is because when i first set the book up i always set up quite long pre-orders so that i've always got a next book in the series for people yeah. to 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 pre-order when they've finished the previous one and at that point i haven't got any other stuff to add to it and i'm too busy to go back in and start <laughs> adding more stuff so it's one of those things if it ain't broke don't fix it yeah no, that's very it's true. working and 
I, I have been experimenting a bit with A plus content and I would like to find the time to do that more. But to be honest, at the moment, my focus is on my newsletter because I've just written a new reader magnet and I'm in the process of trying to fix some technical issues with my website, which is quite embarrassing because I used to be a web developer. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it just goes to show how when you don't do something for a couple of years, you forget how to oh, yeah. do it. <laughs> I'm really glad I don't do that anymore. It's much more complicated now. Um, <laughs> and um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm in the process of fixing that so that my reader magnet will be on my website. Um, so my I've been putting a lot of time into that lately, into writing it and editing it and and setting up um, new automations on my newsletter for people who come in, depending on which reader magnet they get and all that sort of thing. So the A plus content is somewhere in the list. But it's not my priority at the moment. No, no I, we've I think, dabbled a bit, haven't we? We but... ha- you have. I mean, you know, I, I sort of nudged you. You're, you're brilliant at all this stuff. So um, it's uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the visual creative is here without question. Uh, well, uh, I've got to use a degree in fine art for something. You do. You do. <laughs> um, in terms of uh, cover designer, uh, you know, you do your own covers. I do. And what, um, I, what struck me again about those is, again, you know, there's no clutter there. It's, you know, image, name, title, and, and, and none of the other sort of, oh, it's a thrilling such and such, and it's, you know. Well, the witty strap line. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm not a big fan of strap lines. Um, I, I just think they clutter things up a bit much. And they've also, I think when people started putting strap lines on, they would be powerful. But now it's so common that mm. you just ignore them and they, they're very they're very similar on lots of books and they almost feel a little bit cookie cutter sometimes. Um, so yeah, I mean the, the covers it's, it's almost like my guilty secret because I know the advice is always to writers do not make <laughs> your own covers, but I've got a background in graphic design. When I was a, a web designer and developer, I also did graphic design for clients. I I've done graphic design in, in previous jobs. I've never been a professional full-time graphic designer, but you know, I'm trained and I can use, use the various software and um was confident that I had enough of an eye for looking at my comp authors and other books um in the release procedural genre and identifying what the what the elements of those covers were that I could create myself and I think because it is quite a simple um style that you have for that genre my skills are up to it Mm. if I'm writing fantasy uh, no way I would (laughs) hire a cover designer but um a a police procedural cover needs to be simple yeah no it's true yeah and they do fit perfectly yeah and and uh, you know so for those who the very few people who wouldn't be familiar with your books now um dci leslie clark and the 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 dorset series speaks for itself in 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 a sense uh what about zoe Where, where where are they based zoe finch series is based in birmingham Mm-hmm. which was very handy seeing as I wrote the first one in the first lockdown and obviously couldn't travel for research. <laughs> um, I, It was quite funny because I don't know if you remember, they were doing the, the government press briefings every night and they were looking at how many people were using Google Maps and therefore oh, yeah. I was using Google Maps. I was hammering Google Maps because I was working out all the routes around the city that my team were taking when they were you know, going to make an arrest or go to a crime scene or something. And I was... Because often I'll be, I, I quite like, I, something that's very important to me is that a location is like another character. Yes. And when I've got a scene where people are driving from one place to another, 
I will always include detail of what they're passing or which junctions they're taking or where the traffic is or that kind of thing. Um, And obviously, because I couldn't drive it, (laughs) I was checking a lot of that on Google Maps, Um, particularly seeing as it was in a part of the city that has had so much. It was all around Selly Oak and Edgebaston. Yeah. Which, I mean, Selly Oak, I I went to school in, in that part of Birmingham, but it's unrecognizable now because the the hospital there the QE is like a massive spaceship that's landed in the city mm-hmm. and there's a whole new road system to go with it so I had to research that and actually my stepmom knows the area better than me and she was saying well you need to make sure you've got this and that and the other <laughs> so, that's, um, that's useful useful resource there. <laughs> yeah absolutely yeah. um but yeah writing about my home city was great I um proud Brummie and really attached to the place and I've really enjoyed writing about parts of the city that I know and that I've lived in and worked in and the fact that I get feedback from other Brummies um, <laughs> uh, but I, I have to admit I do get a lot more interest in the locations in Dorset because Dorset is somewhere a lot of people have not only lived but visited and I do feel that it feels like everybody living on the Isle of Purbeck has, uh, Isle of Purbeck has read my books now because <laughs> I was at an author event. I was down there for a meeting with um, my hardback cover designer because so, I'm getting an artist to create my hardbacks. Oh, lovely. Um, so they will be more beautiful. Um, and I thought, while I'm down there, I'll just set something up. So I'll, I'll go to the pub where Elsa, who's one of the characters, works, and I'll tell my readers, I'm going to be in this pub. Come along. We'll have a chat. And we ended up, I thought there would just be a few people. We ended up taking over a, a side room of the pub. There Excellent. was one table that wasn't part of this event there were some people just sitting there having their lunch and then halfway through our event a man at the table turned around and said I know you I've read your books <laughs> <laughs> and I thought that was lovely it was just, that must you know, feel wonderful yeah I, I, it's hard to think of a better location frankly because I, I had the most brilliant family holiday in the Isle of Purbeck when I was about I guess about 12 something like that and we were in a cottage as you are you know, so we came down from Cambridge. We were in this cottage. It was a quarryman's cottage uh, up on a cliff and uh, Swanage down below us. You know, and you came past, past the castle, Corfe Castle. Yeah. Uh, just, and we had the best weather. And it, it is so evocative. It's something about, I don't know what it is about the Isle of Purbeck. I think it's because it, it's, uh, you know, the stone and the way that the grass feels with the, 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 the geology of the place. But certain places seem to have an energy. Now yeah, you're making, love... making me want to go. I've never been. You must yeah, go. If you love walk it. along the beach at Swanage, you can see where the different eras mm. hit each other yeah. in the rock. So you can see the Jurassic going to the Cretaceous, and, and it's mm. fascinating. It is. Um, and I love walking it. And if you walk um, the Purbeck Way from Corfe, to Swanage yes. you don't actually go into Swanage you walk up to old Harry Rocks which mm. I've used in a few of my books if you kept walking in a straight line across the sea you would hit the needles yeah and I actually when you walk it you really get a sense of that of the, the geology of that stripe of of chalk where you've got clay for a lot of it but then you've got chalk going out to the needles yes um and you get a real sense of the you know the you know, ancient, ancient, ancient history of the area. And and I think part of the thing about the Isle of Purbeck is the fact that it's semi-cut off from the mainland. Yes. So a lot of people travelling there will get the ferry from Sandbanks 
which is wonderful because it hasn't changed since I was four years old. And I always remember going on it in my dad's open top car and lying, looking up at the stars at night, going over it. <laughs> um, and it's it's still this really old chain ferry that goes across the mouth of Pool Harbour. And there is a sense you you drive up to the ferry at Sandbanks and you're you know, you're at the edge of pool and it's a big city and you've got Millionaire's Alley at Sandbanks. And then it's like the world stops and you look over the, the mouth of the harbour and there's Purbeck and there's no buildings and there's a nature reserve and there's hills and beaches. And it's there's this enforced line where the development has stopped and where it's not built up. And also a lot of it's owned by the National Trust, so it's protected. Um, and it's I love that, the otherworldly sense when you, you go across the ferry and you arrive in Purbeck. Yeah, totally. Right. We need to go. Totally. But of course, you've used um, Sandbanks as your the setting for your latest, the one that's out I, at least yeah. in, uh, in, the, in, the, in the Dorset crime series, The Millionaire Murders. Um, I find it fascinating. I mean, you know, in terms of, uh, I mean, if people haven't seen it, it's worth pick, looking at on YouTube. But the, the, there was a, a, much as I um, find him a difficult character, the Piers Morgan uh, one hour special on Sandbanks. Uh, oh you know visiting, visiting <laughs> yes. harry redknapp and his his the harry coffee. redknapp program is just really laughable because it's like him and his mates gadding about at sandbanks yeah <laughs> in his mansion um but yeah i couldn't resist having a crime scene of one of those mansions so i spent you know i spent time on right move picking one out and then i walked <laughs> along the beach and, and found it and i didn't take photos because i'm i'm very yeah. careful not to having done this in book one I I had a real life cafe in book one that one of the characters minor character it wasn't a big deal worked at and then I found out that the owner of that cafe had read the book and I thought oh okay I will fictionalize things in the future I mean I have still got the pub the Duke of Wellington but I'm and I've been in there and I've told them what I do and they don't seem that bothered by it but it's particularly <laughs> interesting to be honest um but no generally I'm I'm a bit more careful about that now that I've got more people reading them. Absolutely. But it's got that, I mean, it has a certain, we, we, we were re-watching um, uh, Howard's Way and, oh, and Bergerac. Oh. Well, I didn't watch Bergerac, but definitely Howard's Way. Howard's Way, because it had that that sort of, that South Coast, you know, in Jersey, of course, um, opulence. Uh, mm. And, you know, you've got characters that are basically, uh, who could buy their way out of trouble all the time in, 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 in those <laughs> yeah. series. Which they do. <laughs> yeah. um, and I think that, you know, I, I get the impression that, that that's coming through in some, in some ways in, in, in your writing as well, you know, that sort of, that voyeurism almost of like you know, the really wealthy and, and, and then some, someone like your character coming in and going, right, in a brummy way. Yeah. Cutting through yeah. it. <laughs> and the fact that I, I used the housekeeper as the point of view character. So she's comes from a not, you know, not a poor background, but certainly not a wealthy background. And she's in this house that she she almost treats like her own because she's in it quite a lot at the time. And I, I based that actually partly on um, I have a family member who used to be a butler. And his job was often to move around the world in front of his employer. So he would, his employer had properties in, you know, ski resorts and beach places and that sort of thing. He would go a week beforehand and get the place ready. And so there was that sense of feeling like it was his when he was in it, because it would be empty and there would just be him. 
um, and then the employer would turn up and things would change. Um, but I, I, I quite like that sense with her having this real pride in the house that she looked after. Mm, absolutely. So in terms of, you know, your productivity, given that this has all happened uh, in terms of those two series within the last three years, that's extraordinary level of, of, of work. And uh, one thing we picked up, you know, we listened to that interview that you did with the um, self-publishing show and James Blatch um, is that you're dictating uh, yes. your books because of your shoulder. I've got yeah. the same problem. I mean, my shoulder's completely wrecked, my right shoulder now, from using, you know, sitting at a desk and mouse and whatever else. Uh, mm. It's absolutely ruined. Um, and I'm really struggling to do a lot of things. So, uh, you know, was that an easy conversion? It was hard at first. I found the first book, I, the first book I did it with was The Call of Castle Murders. So I wrote all the Zoe Finch books the traditional way on a laptop. Um, and I at first with the Call of Castle Murders, I tried using dictation software. So I tried Dragon. Yeah. Um, and then I tried Otter. But I have so much dialogue in my books that I got fed up of having to constantly open and close quotation yes. marks and, uh, and all the punctuation. And often it wouldn't pick it up. And then I'd have to edit it back in. And it was it was driving me nuts and, and pushing me out of the flow of the story. And I thought, hang on a minute. I read um, Kevin J. Anderson's book. How to yes. be a on, on being a dictator. Being a dictator. Um, and um, and he he works with a human being, as as you know, as people used to do. <laughs> um, and so I thought, well, yeah, maybe I'll try that. That will work better. And I found a woman in Australia who dictates overnight. So I, who transcribes overnight? So mm. I will dictate something one day. She'll transcribe it overnight, and then I can edit it the next day. Brilliant. So that helps with the productivity. Um, it's quite funny because people keep saying, oh, can you give me her details? But she's not actually taking on any more clients. So I have oh, to dang. She's um, a human being, though, isn't she? So she needs to sleep. <laughs> but, but, yeah, as a principal, I'm, you know, there are other people who do this. Obviously, it does cost more money than using software. But for me, in terms of the productivity, that's worth it because that means I can write more books. Um, yeah. It takes me two months to write a book. So the process takes three months. But in terms of my workload, it's two months because in the middle of that, there's time when it's with my editor and proofreaders and so forth. And that's another thing I do with my editor, which came about purely by accident because of our schedules. But we had one book where um, he was editing it in in sections. So he um, had availability and said, oh, shall I start editing it? I'll do the first quarter. And it worked quite well. And now that's what we do. And we've actually, for this current book, Fossil Beach Murders, we're sharing a Google Doc. So I will start in Scrivener because I like Scrivener to help me with structure and notes and all that sort of thing and keywords. But then when I'm happy with it, I will copy it into the Google Doc and then he will edit it. So he literally works as I go along. And when he's you know got the time to be editing, he he is keeping up with me. So it means when we get to the end of the book, it only takes him a couple of days to edit the final batch. That uh, is fascinating. Because really that's completely mm. different to the sort of standard traditional system. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's brilliant. But I like that because the efficiency of that you'd have queries. He, does he have queries as he's going along, which feeds it's back much into the more, Yeah. It's much more collaborative. So he will he will get in touch with me and say, I've spotted this. And it means that I can then change that for the rest of the book as against having to go back and work through the entire book. So if he spots something quite early on that, that isn't right or that needs changing, it means I can implement that for the rest of the book. 
uh, it's much more efficient and 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 better because it means we're working together more as yeah. against working separately at two stages of time yeah and also he could he could change something and then you look at it and think hang on a minute that's you've misunderstood something but he's done all that work but this way yeah i mean to be honest time. i don't go back and look at his edits until i've finished the first draft so I don't look at the document itself. So right. if he's got something he wants to draw my attention to, he will message me separately. Mm-hmm. Um, because I find I get bogged down in looking at, I want to keep moving forward with the story and not go back. Um, and I find that that, that works well because he knows that I, I don't do that. Um, he can tell that by looking at the Google Doc and he also knows because you know he knows how I work. So he, he does, you know, get in touch with me another way and and bring things to my attention if needs be and in terms of when you're dictating i mean presumably you've got a structure that you work to you know what sort of points you're trying to hit when you're you're going into a session i i will tend to plot about 10 to 20 chapters in advance and i do have very short chapters so i'll have about 100 chapters in a book yeah um so i'll basically plot a week's worth of work and um and then i have i have a notebook where i've just got I've got all those plot points written down and I've got a sentence for each chapter and that gives me a kicking off point. But when I first started, that was very different because I, I had almost a page for each chapter mm-hmm. and because I didn't have the confidence to, to just dictate a chapter. Cause I think the thing is when you're dictating, because it's so much faster, you have to think faster and yes. Um, you have to get the plot points in your head while you're doing it and that's quite hard to get used to so I did that in my notes to start with and I was finding that it was taking me almost as long to write those notes as it would have done to type out the whole book (laughs) so I did force myself to be a bit less detailed with that and go back in the edits and and improve things there but but now I'm yeah I'm getting more I'm, I'm now on my sixth book doing that so I'm getting much more confident doing it and I can start with just a line and then write and dictate an entire chapter based on it I'm trying to imagine what what sort of environment you're in to do that, and also do you slip into <laughs> in character? Because when when I I mean you know I go into these florid sort of about three in the morning, I'll suddenly break into character and I'll start acting. <laughs> poor, poor Rebecca has to put up with me putting on a voice and creating a scenario. Well, whatever it's not else. a character; it's Michael Caine, so I'll get one or yeah, the other. So <laughs> Michael will appear. You're supposed to blow the place. Right, I will snuggle up to her, and you know, I mean. Yeah, Rebecca, my darling. Yeah. And I'll just say, oh. <laughs> no, but I mean, do you do you slip into character voices to try and get the? Um, not so much voices, but but mood. Um, mm. and so I do most of my dictation in my car, because I do it after I drop my kids off at school in the morning, and that mm-hmm. means it's done. So yeah. I will sit in the car after they've left the car um because they're teenagers so I don't have to physically take them into school and I will dictate anywhere between two and four chapters and I find actually by the time I've done that the traffic's died down and I get home a lot quicker so it's almost like negative time um and then it means I get back and I've done my dictation for the day and that's such a good feeling and my car is somewhere private and quiet mm. with reasonable acoustics. I'm going to say, you don't get people knocking um, on the window saying... <laughs> people probably walk past me as a mad woman. Because sometimes if I'm doing a scene where people are having an argument or something, I will get quite animated. And, and my transcriber <laughs> and I do sometimes joke that we should use these for the audiobooks. <laughs> because I do, <laughs> I do get quite into it. And I, I enjoy doing it because I think it 
it does actually help me, particularly with dialogue. Yeah. I find that it makes the dialogue stronger because I'm speaking it, not writing it. Yeah, I think yeah. that's absolutely right. I think, you know, I suppose if we don't dispense that much advice out, really, but the one thing that we always say to anybody who's submitted to us and it's not quite there on the dialogue, it had to be read this out yeah, loud. Yeah, read it out loud. Mm. Um, you know, you find so much doing that. And I well, I find that in narration, you know, it's it's amazing how a book that we've published and I'll go in and start narrating and I go, how do we let this slip through? <laughs> <laughs> because, you know, the the there is such a difference in the uh, what pops out of the page if you're just writing for writing, you know, to, to reader as opposed to how it sounds. And sometimes you just pick, you know, the cadence and the structure hasn't yeah. quite worked but you don't notice it until you say it out loud no and I think a dialogue is all about a balance because dialogue in a book is not like real speech no because it's 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 clearer and it gets to the point but not so much that it's on the nose and I think um it's something that does take practice and it does take you know, reading your stuff aloud reading other books with good dialogue and identifying what it is that works about that um and but i definitely find that dictating helps wonderful well i think it is time it is time now to face (laughs) the ultimate challenge in book podcasting Um, (laughs) i'm I'm going into my sort of (laughs) jeremy clarkson mode here it is the toughest question i don't want him at 3 a.m no you don't <laughs> yeah, I'm going to start making <laughs> start making uh, lewd comments now, aren't I, about gear sticks and things? No, um, let's uh, let's get to it. So I I will give it the build up. Rebecca's random question. Okay, it's a question about childhood, so you have to go back a little bit. And I was thinking this morning as I was lying in bed, how there are certain phrases you hear as a child, but you don't quite get them right. And I used to think we were human beings, as in you had baked beans and we were human beings. So do you have any from your childhood phrases such as that, that you just took as your own? (laughs) Oh, my goodness. (laughs) Um, Told you they were random. Trying to think. There were lots of phrases, lots of things my mum used to say. Um, ah, trying to think of any that are like weird ones like that as against just like idiosyncratic phrases I mean I can think of one that isn't it isn't really like that but it is a childhood phrase and it's from Swanage yeah because when I was very small before my parents got their caravan in Wareham um, we used to stay at a hotel called the Pines Hotel, which is still there. And it's on the clifftop in Swanage in a fantastic mm. spot. Yeah. And it's got a set of steps that go down to the beach. And these days they're very sturdy steps. And but in those days, in the 1970s, they were not. <laughs> they were made of wood. And my dad called them the rickety rackety steps, which then became the rickety racketies. So every morning my dad and I would get up, leave my mom for a bit of a rest. My dad would stick me on his shoulders and we'd go down the rickety racketies to the oh. beach, then back up again. I love that. I love, uh, yeah, sort of family phrases that, um, you know, because I'm about to see my mum later. Well, this is interesting because we were talking about this last night. Yeah. The family phrases that you you create as a family. So, yeah, and as kids when they're mis- mispronouncing so things. So m- 
in my family, and I thought everybody used this phrase, if you're in a car and somebody happens to have, let's say, a windy problem, <laughs> someone would say, come on then, who just shot a rabbit? I thought that was normal. But I don't, I don't know. I don't know where that came from. The first mention you meant of that was when I shot a rabbit last night. Um, <laughs> I was trying to dissuade the cat from getting in the bed. But um, no, I mean, I, I mean, my mother, uh, she's Mrs. Malaprop. So she would always, she, she loved to use a foreign accent for whatever reason. I don't know. I mean, you know, it wasn't influenced by Allo Allo. She, she was doing it long before Allo Allo came out. But <laughs> everything was like, if it wasn't special, it was speciali. You know, okay. one of my favourites. So I have made something. I, she was I, like, we, we have a lot of words for our cats. Uh-huh. This isn't childhood for me. This is childhood for my children. Yeah. So our cats have many, many nicknames. And Dizzy, who's very elderly and a bit sort of, she doesn't have the muscle tone that she used to have. When she <laughs> yeah. walks, her legs look like she's wearing pantaloons. Yeah. Well, actually, our cat has pantaloons. And I call her Mrs. Pantalones. Oh, oh sweet. that's so sweet. <laughs> Well, I can't wait to see my mum because at the moment now she's got dementia, sadly, and um, I haven't seen her for a few months. But she she now doesn't remember those phrases that were so common. Oh. So I sometimes drop them in, and she suddenly so there's a sort of glimmer of recognition. They go, ah, yes, speciali, yeah, you know. So she'll, mm. she'll she'll know that. Say that later. I hope. How about when she she used to call you a rat all yes, the time? Yes, <laughs> yes. I mean, you know, you rat. I am, I, <laughs> you are a rat. Uh, I hope I hope I get a rat today. I mean, that would be nice. You know, I feel like, you know, yeah, we'll see. We'll see. Listen, Rachel, it's been an absolute pleasure. And, I want and to find really, the rickety rackety fair. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll ta- I'll take you there. We'll go at the weekend. Um, so fair on way, though. Um, it's been such a pleasure. And we wish you every success with the new series that you're, you're planning. You. Um, and obviously continued success with the ones that have really just been staggeringly successful and well-deserved. Um, you know, uh, we've learned a lot from this uh, this interview, and we, uh, I'm sure, all of our listeners will too. Thank you. It's been really good fun having a chat with the two of you. <laughs> Thank you. Likewise. Thank you so much. And uh, yeah, we'll keep in touch. But good luck. Thanks. The wonderful Rachel McLean. Go to rachelmclean.com to find out more about her books. And uh, you know, extremely generous with her time there, and frankly, all the information she shared with us, which was. Fabulous. So we wish her every success. Now, this week, um, I've started the interview with a little down moment talking about Ukraine, but there was something that really hit me this week. And I've written about it in our our Hobeck diary, which we're publishing at the end of the year. Uh, And that was the passing of of another friend and a mentor of mine, actually, Um, John Whitworth, uh, better known to everybody who ever worked on URE or University Radio Exeter or Expression FM over the last 40, 45 years as Frog. Now, Frog. Uh, was a technician at the biology department of Exeter University. But his passion, his love, was radio, and he kept us together as a station. Year on year, he sacrificed endless hours fixing all the kit we broke, uh, teaching us how to do it, and he was the spirit and the sort of glue that bound the whole station together. Without that, I would never have been a broadcaster without him. And he was such a gentle soul. He would get angry when something, you know, was broken wantonly. Because we lived on a shoestring. We had a budget of about £500 a term to live on. So a £50 stylus getting broken on one of our big deal. record decks was a huge deal. Um, you know, we, we were on a subsistence living as a, as a radio station. On top of which, 
the university and the Guild of Students were always trying to shut us down because we had a bit of real estate under the steps of the student union. They, the university wanted that back as a storage space and the Guild didn't want to have to put any hands in their pockets ever to support the most successful student radio station in the country at the time, which has produced generations of broadcasters who, in the UK, you will all recognise. Um, can you some... name some? Well, yeah, I can. I mean, the, you know, I suppose the, the the number one stars that I can think of, Frank Gardner, the um, BBC's security um, editor, uh, who famously and infamously, I should say, really, uh, put his life on his line going to try and uh, access Al-Qaeda in Saudi Arabia, and they actually shot him and he killed his cameraman, and he was paralysed. As a result, um, John Kay, who presents BBC Breakfast and is the West of England correspondent for the BBC. Russell Fuller, oh, BBC tennis correspondent. Lovely Russell. Jim Proudfoot, probably the best commentator on football in the country, although he never gets the recognition he deserves. That's just from my generation. Yeah, I was going to say. And one of one of the authors we spoke to on the podcast Simon was a McLean. URE yeah. um, uh, alumni. So, yeah. yeah, Simon McLeaf, although we didn't cross paths with him did we no 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 um, I mean, there are lots and lots of names who've gone through ure over the years and uh it was frog who gave us the platform on which to learn i have a question then how did he earn his nickname do you know uh, it's long forgotten he just chose it he was <laughs> i mean he was a, in essence a sort of latter-day hippie um he really loved his folk music he loved his prog rock he did his own show the frog prog which would involved links that went on for half an hour before getting to the tune you'd lose all sense of where where you're going with it but he was uh he was an eccentric in many many ways but he was also grounded in realism and uh as well so there was this wonderful combination but how he tolerated all the undergraduates that came through the place uh generations you know the, each committee would have their own peccadilloes and arguments there was so many politics involved um <laughs> I was always constantly fighting people. Uh, you know, it wouldn't surprise you to learn. But it was, um, we all did it for passion. And the one thing we all wanted to make sure was that at the end of our term as committee, the, the station still existed and Frog still had somewhere to go and solder. But I think that's, that's it. You've hit the nail on the head there. You know, he, he had the passion. And if other people had the passion, irrespective of their personalities and their battles and their fights and their, you know, if you share that passion, you've all got the same goal, haven't you? Which is... yeah learning your craft and keeping a radio station going so absolutely i mean he did sort of eye roll sometimes when people who used to come in i mean i suppose it would have been in current generations who have their own platforms since radio is less sexy than you know instagram or something like that but if you think about it before we had platforms where you could self-publicize people came on to ure to do that they did i know so i remember definitely Uh, so exactly it's the same sort of desire isn't it that same aim for popularity and yeah but yeah you can do it yourself now you can indeed you can indeed well who have we got next week i have a mental blank are we not going to exeter we're going yes our special one next week i sorry i completely because i was thinking of a person it is a person but it's not quite the same as the usual podcast the reason is we're going to Exeter University. We are talking about Frog. We're not going to <laughs> no, pay tribute to him uh, when we're there. But the, we're going down to uh, meet the curator of the Agatha Christie collection, which is held at Exeter University's library, which is a fabulous treasure trove of correspondence from Agatha Christie and her business agent. And it will shed a light, I think, on a woman whose works we know, but we know so little about her personally. 
she was she was a bit of a closed book at times but we'll find out about the things that drove her and the things that worried her being the most successful author in the world whilst still alive which is an unusual thing um you would think uh it, that we're going to get a lot of information from that so that's a special when we go on location again next week in exeter yes and um i think i mean agatha christie is is unique in a way isn't she because she, she her enduring popularity and there's so many crime writers that we know of and crime readers as well who she is their inspiration or their first um gateway gateway drug yeah, their experience into crime fiction and they they fell in love with crime fiction through reading Agatha christie as a teenager or a child or you know so it's very exciting that's going to be uh, very exciting to do. So we're looking forward to that. We're going to be reading across the thing. We've got a busy week when we get back. Uh, I'm back in hospital again for yet more tests. Uh, you know, the endless litany of things that are going wrong with me. But, uh, you know, nonetheless, keep smiling and keep happy. We're very happy where we are at the moment. So from myself, Adrian Hobart. And myself, and I don't want to go home, Rebecca Collins. On the coast of Anglesey, we have been the Hobcast Book Show. And we thank you for joining us. Please, of course, look at our website, www.hobeck.net, for all details of uh, our books and our authors. And also, uh, we would uh, recommend that you, if you enjoyed the show, and I hope you did, uh, that you'll subscribe to us at whichever podcast platform you get your podcasts from. That would be immensely supportive of you. But uh, from us, let's uh, say our usual thing, which is have a very happy and creative week. Bye-bye. You've been listening to the Hobcast from Hobeck Books with Adrian Hobart and Rebecca Collins. You can find the show notes at our website, www.hobeck.net. You can also use the exclusive Hobcast discount code for any of the products at our Hobeck online store. Just enter the code HOBCAST20 for a 20% discount. Don't forget to subscribe to the Hobcast and feel free to contact us with any feedback. Until next time, remember our motto, Trad Values, Indie Spirit. Spirit.